Welcome to World War I Centennial News. It's about World War I 100 years ago this week, and it's about World War I now. News and updates about the centennial and the commemoration. Today is August 23, 2017, and our guests this week are Lynn Heidelbaugh, curator of the Smithsonian National Postal Museum, Mike Schuster from the Great War Project blog, the storyteller and the historian Richard Rubin and Jonathan Bratton, John Motley from the 100 Cities, 100 Memorials Project in Fort Towson, Oklahoma, and Andrew Carroll, founding director of the Center for American War Letters at Chapman University. World War I Centennial News is brought to you by the U.S. World War I Centennial Commission and the Pritzker Military Museum and Library. I'm Teo Mayer, the Chief Technologist for the Commission and your host. Welcome to the show. We've gone back in time 100 years to explore the war that changed the world. It's 1917, and America is preparing a war effort that's transforming her more quickly than any previous event in her short history. For example, 100 years later, people will simply take for granted the country's ability to move huge volumes of goods, resources, and people across the vast land. But there's no highway system in 1917. There are a few canals, but there is a large and even transcontinental infrastructure, the railroads. So it's not surprising that trains quickly become a key strategic element in the war effort 100 years ago. Following are some of the headlines and notes from the official bulletin, America's War Gazette, published daily by the Committee on Public Information, the U.S. government's propaganda ministry, headed by George Creel. We'll track the story about the railroads through its headlines and pages starting just a month after war is declared. Dateline, May 15, 1917. Headline, Bill to Give President Power Over Freight Shipments Introduced. And the story reads, As war conditions develop, it is certain that there will be times when the shipment of arms and ammunitions may be of prime importance. At another time, the movement of provisions may be more important, and yet at another, the movement of coal and iron ore may become the most important of all. Under these conditions, it is thought essential that the president should have the power to determine what particular freight shall have priority and for how long this priority should continue. Less than a month later, the real scope of the challenge is outlined in the bulletin. Dateline, June 5, 1917. Headline, The mobilization of railroads for the nation's war needs are defined. And the story reads, Freight cars are lacking. There are 2,500,000 freight cars in the United States, and their capacity is barely sufficient for current commercial needs. The railroads in the near future will use 120,000 cars to transport materials for the construction of the new Army training camps and a continuous flow of cars to keep those camps in supplies. They estimate that it will take 200,000 cars to carry the materials used for the construction of the government's merchant ships, whether of steel or of wood. 
They will require an enormous number of cars to move the steel for the ships under construction for the Navy, and no estimate whatever can be made for the number of cars which will be needed to carry the materials used in the manufacture of munitions and supplies for the Army, and in moving them a second time, from the point of manufacture to the shipping point. Dateline, June 21, 1917. Headline, More Extended Use of Interior Waterways of Country Urged by Secretary of Commerce. So the maxing out of capacity is clearly being recognized by all concerned, and everyone is looking for answers, as this story illustrates. The president of one of our leading railways has recently said, The railroads of the United States are carrying more freight than ever before in the history of the country. But when they have carried traffic up to 100% of their capacity, there still remains 15, 25, perhaps 30% in traffic which is impossible for them to carry at all. No one who knows the facts will question that the railroads of the country are overwhelmed by the present traffic. There is said to be a shortage of around 150,000 cars. Radical measures are being taken in an effort to meet the situation. The railroads are insufficient for the task laid upon them, and the problem is likely to become more serious. It will not be long before large bodies of troops must be moved with their equipment in this country. Although Americans were used to traveling through the country by rail, a visit to Aunt Tilly's is not in the cards anytime soon. Dateline, July 17, 1917. Headline, Huge Reduction in Passenger Train Service. The story reads, The railroads of the United States, as part of their effort under the direction of the Railroads War Board, report the elimination of passenger trains aggregating over 16,200,000 miles of train service per year. This is done by the railroads to save the manpower, fuel, and motive power that they may be applied to the transportation of necessities. Every ton of coal, Every locomotive, every mile of track space, every man whose duties are absorbed by an unnecessary passenger train can be put to effective use in freight service, and nothing is more necessary at this moment to ensure the safety and prosperity of the country than that the railroads be able to handle the utmost possible amount of freight. This leads to the big story 100 years ago this week. Dateline August 20th, 1917. Headline. Plans for the greatest troop movement in U.S. history are now being perfected. The American Railway Association is preparing schedules to ensure safe and prompt carrying of the armies. Altogether, 687,000 men will have to be transported to the various cantonments that the government is building to house the new National Army. The movement will start September 5th. Between that date and September 9th, the railroads will complete the entrainment of 200,000 men, or approximately 30% of the total number scheduled to be moved to the various training camps. The facts are that to move merely one field army of 80,000 men requires 6,229 cars made up into 366 trains, with as many locomotives and train crews. Meanwhile, in addition to moving the 680,000 recruits for the National Army, 
The railroads have been asked to supply transportation for the 350,000 members of the National Guard, moving them to their training camps. So it's easy to see how challenging and strategic this key piece of infrastructure is for the war effort. This leads President Wilson to issue an order for the nationalization of the U.S. railway industry on December 26, 1917. Now that the troops are shipping out, first to training camps and soon thereafter overseas, another key logistics element has to be nailed into place, one that is essential to the mental and spiritual well-being of our fighting forces. Mail service. With us today is Lynn Heidelbaugh, curator at the Smithsonian National Postal Museum, who's going to talk to us about the mail service and how it adapted to the changing needs of a population at war. Welcome, Lynn. Hi, Tam. So, Lynn, can you fill us in on how the U.S. Postal Service in America had to transform and adapt when the war was declared? Yes, I would love to talk about that. It's um, quite dramatic. The post office department had to coordinate with the war departments and the Navy to handle a huge increase in the volume of mail. Also, lots of changes in their uh, employee and staffing as uh, post office department employees were drafted or volunteered for service, um, which meant that they for some of the first time, hired women to be uh, city delivery carriers. And many women also took over their husband's jobs as postmasters in um, small town communities. So it really changed some of the workforce for the post office department as their employees went into military service. And then they also uh, selected members of the career professionals to go and uh, help establish some of the postal stations overseas for the military as well. So they had to make great adjustments uh, in how they they carried out all their work. Did the Postal Service get involved with mail censorship, or was that strictly the War Department? Yes, in, in different ways. The Post Office Department was working with a censorship board in the U.S. Uh, domestically, looking primarily at second-class mail they were concerned with, where the military was censoring uh, the personal letters of the enlisted officers. That was under the jurisdiction of the, of the military themselves. Lynn, later on in the show, we're going to hear from Andrew Carroll from the Center for American War Letters at Chapman University. I know he contributed to your Pershing exhibit, My Fellow Soldiers, Letters from World War I. When did that open? We opened on April 6th of 2017, and the project was in collaboration with the Center for American War Letters, and we've borrowed um, from over 20 individuals and organizations, uh, such as Library of Congress, the National Archives, and um, we've got some pretty phenomenal personal letters from the war from soldiers, sailors, officers, as well as um, a lot of social welfare workers um, with the Red Cross and the YMCA. And we're really trying to look at uh, very different experiences during the war from the front as well as the home front. So what was going on with the wives and the parents who were left at home and how they were communicating to everybody who was sent overseas and into the war zone. Lynn, museum exhibits are not really about artifacts and objects. They're actually about stories. So, and as the curator of a postal museum exhibition about World War I, is there anything that sticks out as a particularly memorable story for you? Picking the letters was uh, quite a challenge because we had such a rich history to, to choose from. There were 
probably about 50 million letters that were exchanged in the first year alone being sent from the U.S. and then back mainly from France and from the American Expeditionary Forces there. So that's a, quite an amount to, to pick from. And we're very lucky that so many families have kept and cherished these letters as well as turned them over to archives. One of the ones that always I come back to in a story that hangs on, on my sort of heart and mind, Larry Bodis and his family shared a, a letter from their uh, grandmother who was writing to her mother-in-law. And what she did was copy out a letter that her husband had sent her. He had been injured in the Second Battle of the Marne, and he was in a French hospital. So he was not expecting to really be called up into battle. He was a, a cook by the name of Harry Stevanus. And he, during the battle, he had been injured in the arm and also ended up having his leg amputated at a French hospital. The letter was transcribed by a French uh, caregiver at the hospital. And then his wife took it upon herself to copy out the entire letter to share the news with her mother-in-law. And she follows what um, Harry asked her to do is try to give her mother-in-law some hope about Harry's health and well-being. And um, she really opens with a boosting and trying to give her, her mother-in-law a sense that everything will be okay. And we do find out that the family had kept up the whole series of letters once Harry was sent back to the U.S. and was recuperating um, in, the, in the hospital in the U.S. Thank you, Lynn. It was excellent. It was a pleasure and an honor to talk to you today. That was Lynn Heidelbaugh, curator at the Smithsonian National Postal Museum. This week in our War in the Sky segment, we're going to talk about the famous U.S. 94th Aero Squadron, which is established at Kelly Field, Texas, on August 20, 1917. The Hat and the Ring Gang, named for their squadron logo, is one of the first American pursuit squadrons to reach the Western Front and see combat. Three notable airmen serve in the squadron, and perhaps the most well-known is Eddie Rickenbacker who will be awarded almost every decoration attainable, including the Medal of Honor and the Distinguished Service Cross. On a personal note, I have a silver cigarette case from my grandfather that is signed by a bunch of his flying buddies, including Eddie Rickenbacker. I have always treasured it. So another interesting member of the Hat and the Ring Gang is Raoul Luffberry. Now, he transferred over from the famous Lafayette Escadrille. Luffberry, a really colorful character, famously adopted a lion cub while with the Lafayette and named him Whiskey, then later got Whiskey a lioness playmate called Soda. So besides being a little eccentric, he is, of course, an amazing aviator. Finally, there's Douglas Campbell, who will become the first American-trained pilot to be an air ace. We're going to follow the 94th Aero Squadron's exploits over the coming months, a famous squadron that was born 100 years ago this week. There are several links in the podcast notes for you to learn more. Now we're joined by Mike Schuster, former NPR correspondent and curator for the Great War Project blog. By now, we've heard about the French mutinies of 1917, the mass desertions in the Russian army, and bewildered and beleaguered troops across the war front. But it isn't just with the Allies. Today, Mike's Post looks at the war weariness in the German military. Welcome, Mike. That's right, Theo. Here are the headlines. Insurrection in the German military. 
Navy is cauldron of dissent, mutineers jailed and shot. And this is special to the Great War Project. Fighting is furious once again at the Belgian village of Ypres on the Western Front a century ago, provoking disillusion in the German ranks. It's one of the first moments that dissent breaks out into public view. In early August, reports historian Martin Gilbert, more than 5,000 German soldiers were taken prisoner. For the Kaiser and his commanders, however, the danger was not only on the Western Front. When British troops took up their new positions at Ypres, Trouble broke out aboard the German battleship Prince Regent Leopold at the port of Wilhelmshaven. At that point, a stoker, Alban Kobus, led 400 sailors into the town and addressed them with a call, down with the war. We no longer want to fight this war. Kobus and the sailors were persuaded to return to their ship. Much of their anger was caused by widespread hunger in both the military and civilian populations. The British blockade of Germany had a deep effect. The shortages were catastrophic, writes historian Eugene Rogan. The majority of Germans may still not have been willing to end the war at any price, but morale was very fragile and the atmosphere fractious. The food shortages in the military were especially acute in the Navy. The rations of battleship crews were miserable, reports historian Rogan, while their superiors still ate well. The summer of 1917 had seen repeated strikes on several battleships, as sailors tested the limits of authority and tried to assert their rights. The home district commanders warned that the longing for peace is spread throughout all classes of the population. This follows a wave of strikes earlier in the year in which 300,000 workers participated. The spark that ignited the strikes, reduction of the very inadequate bread ration. According to historian Gilbert, much of the subversion in the military was also focused on the Navy. The Naval Command viewed any political activism as subversion and revolutionary insurrection. And that wasn't far from the truth. Cobus and his fellow plotters had hoped to spark a strike, demanding peace across the battle fleet. Some 5,000 sailors signed such a petition. There was no violence, but in the aftermath, reports Gilbert, courts martial handed down 10 death sentences, two of which were carried out. As for Cobus, he and the sailors who followed him were labeled as bad political attitudes and were sent to shore stations. 75 of them were jailed. Cobus, according to Gilbert, was one of those sentenced to death and was shot by an army firing squad. Before his execution, he wrote to his parents, I die with a curse on the German militarist state. Cobus's wasn't the only such rebellion. In another, a sailor who was sentenced to death had his sentence commuted to 15 years in prison. According to Gilbert, he told the court, Nobody wants a revolution. We just wanted to be treated more like human beings. And that's the news from the Great War Project for this week a century ago. Thank you, Mike. That was Mike Schuster from the Great War Project blog. For videos about World War I, go to see our friends at the Great War Channel on YouTube. Here's Indy Nidell, the host of the Great War Channel. Hi, World War I Centennial News listeners. I'm Indy Nidell, host of the Great War YouTube Channel. American troops are now arriving over here in steadily larger numbers. But if you want to know more about what kind of situation they arrive at once they get over here, you should join us every Thursday for a new episode of The Great War. Find us on YouTube and like us on Facebook. This week's new episodes include The Battle of Hill 70, Mackeson Advances in Romania. Another episode, Trench Mortars. And Romanian Guns of World War I. 
Follow the link in the podcast notes or search for The Great War on YouTube. Next, it's time for the storyteller and the historian. Today, the intrepid duo are going to explore the challenges of being a German-American during World War I. Greetings. This is Richard Rubin, storyteller, the author of The Last of the Doughboys, and back over there. And this is Jonathan Bratton, historian. A hundred years ago, more Americans could trace their ancestry to Germany than to any other country, something which, by the way, is still true today. But a hundred years ago was a very uncomfortable time, I would say, to be a German-American. German-Americans were coming under a great deal of suspicion in this country, at least in official circles, for perceived dual loyalties and were being subjected to harassment. Um, Some were losing their jobs. A great many were forced to anglicize their names. And I should point out that German-Americans have been in this country since colonial times. Oh, yeah. And, and not only just, not only colonial times, but they were a massive moving force within the nation in, in some of our most dire moments, such as, of course, the Civil War, where upwards of 100,000, at least 100,000 Germans served in uniform, many of them making up a full army under the German general Franz Siegel. Uh, so this is not a, a group of people who has just stood by during uh, critical moments of American history. They've put their lives on the line for sure, it. Sure, and it suddenly became okay to post signs at city parks uh, saying, no Germans or dogs. Uh, in southern Illinois, uh, a German-American was lynched, uh, primarily, I think, for being an ornery cuss, uh, which was not, as I understand it, a capital offense in Illinois at the time. Uh, these were not good times. There was a lot of harassment, German vol- German-American volunteers, volunteers were turned away from the Red Cross because rumors were afoot that Germans were putting ground glass into bandage rolls. Um, this, th- it was To say that there was uh, anti-German hysteria in this country, I think, is not to go too far. No, I think that, in, in fact, it was, it was definitely anti-German hysteria, and to the, with the point of even almost what we would today call um, cultural extermination when you try to get rid of all the signs of a culture such as its language um, the the very uh, essence of a culture the, all the things that, that make up a specific group when you try to stamp them out as happened in multiple German communities during the First World War in the United States uh, it's really sort of we, we've never really seen that quite before at such a large scale in U.S. history. And, and on such weird levels, I mean, German music mm. was banned. Music by German composers was banned. German plays were banned. The speaking of German was banned in many places. Certainly the teaching of German. You would think you'd want people to learn German if right. you're at war with Germany, and yet the teaching of German was banned all over the place. Interestingly, though, this was all a product of America entering the war. Before America entered the war, 
even though uh, there was general paranoia about German saboteurs, uh, German Americans went about their business freely and unmolested. And in fact, a newspaper published in New York, a German language newspaper known as the New Yorker Staatszeitung, or the New York State's Times, uh, published a great deal of what I guess you could call pro-German propaganda pretty much right up until America entered World War One, and then I presume it was shut down for the duration of the war, and so a lot was going on. Just to give you a little bit of flavor of what the atmosphere was like for German-Americans, I want to read an excerpt from an article published in the New York Herald, May 28, 1917, so less than two months after America entered the war. Uh, the headline is Pro-German gloaters listed by federal agents. New York, commenting upon the report that federal agents were compiling a list of gloaters, i.e. Teuton sympathizers who exhibit satisfaction at reverses suffered by the Allies and the sinking of American ships, the New Yorker Staatszeitung says... It has already been admitted that there exists no law under which such gloaters, those rejoicing maliciously, may be punished. As for the enemy aliens, however, who make merry over America's undertakings, who praise Hindenburg as if he were not America's archenemy, they will be interned. The warning is plain enough. So in the future, don't laugh, do not even grin. Not only hold your tongue, but also close your lips. Thank you, gentlemen. That was the storyteller Richard Rubin and the historian Jonathan Bratton. The Storyteller and the Historian is now a full hour-long monthly podcast. Look for them on iTunes and Libsyn, or follow the link in the podcast notes. We've moved forward in time to the present. Welcome to World War I Centennial News Now. This part of the program is not about history, but how the centennial of the war that changed the world is being commemorated today. This week in Commission News, we're announcing a new program from the National World War I Museum and Memorial in Kansas City called Send a Deserving Teacher on an Adventure. You can nominate a teacher of your choice, which can include yourself, for a drawing to win a free trip to the National World War I Museum and Memorial. The drawing is random, but the platform being used to collect entries allows users to enter more ballots by doing actions such as sharing the contest on social media, visiting the Education Resource Archive, and so on. And of course, you and your nominee will be signed up for the semi-monthly education newsletter. The contest runs through September 8th at theworldwar.org slash contest. And there's a link in the podcast notes. At the commission, we created the U.S. National World War I Centennial Events Register, where we're compiling and archiving World War I commemoration events from around the country, not just from major metros and museums, but also local events from the heart of the country, showing how World War I centennial commemorations are being played out all over America. 
you can access and contribute to the register at www.cc.org events. Click the big red button to put your World War I commemoration event into the register, or use the search box on the left column to see what's happening in your neck of the woods. There's a link in the podcast notes. Our local event pick of the week comes from the Public Libraries of Maryland. A special World War I oil painting exhibit is currently on display at the Thurmont Regional Library and will be moving to the C. Burr Arts Public Library in Fredericks, Maryland until the end of September. The exhibit includes a set of five paintings of World War I planes by Robert Horvath, a former Talbot County Free Library director. The paintings are on loan from the U.S. Air Force Museum in Washington, D.C. Margaret Carty, executive director of the Maryland Library Association, who helped put the exhibit together, noted, When you look at the aviation then and the aviation now, for young people it must be almost mind-boggling to think that anyone dared to get into those old planes. In October, the exhibit will go to Montgomery County at the Olney Branch, followed by Talbot County in November. Follow the link in the podcast notes to see when and where you can see the exhibit. For our major Metro event pick of the week, we go to Boston, where the Russell Museum of Medical History and Innovation features The Spirit of Devotion, Massachusetts General Hospital in the First World War. There's a short film about the hospital's involvement in World War I, and they'll host a series of lectures. The hospital lobby exhibit will be changed every few months with new material. The organization operated a base hospital in Talence, France, between 1917 and 1918, and many doctors, nurses, and other personnel joined medical efforts in support of the Allied forces. Read more about the upcoming exhibit and lectures by following the link in the podcast notes. And for our newest feature, Speaking World War I, where we explore today's words and phrases that are rooted in the war, this week's word is strafe or strafing. In German, the word for punishment is Strafe. And that's exactly what German fighter planes did as they swept down from the skies, flying low to the ground and unloading their machine guns into the soldiers of the trenches. It was a punishment from the sky. This air-to-ground support maneuver soon became known as to strafe or strafing the troops, an anglicized version of the German word for punishment. Strafe, this week's word for speaking World War I. See the translation from Google Translate in the podcast notes. Na ja, da gebe ich dir eine Strafe. Every week, we're profiling one of the many amazing projects submitted to our $200,000 matching grant giveaway to rescue ailing World War I memorials. The program's called 100 Cities, 100 Memorials. And last week, we profiled the Albert Harry Bode gravesite in Jackson, California. This week, we head to Fort Towson, Oklahoma, to learn about a very unique project there. Joining us is John Motley retired U.S. Army lieutenant colonel and nephew of Mrs. Margie Motley, who, at 95 years young, has commissioned a new World War I memorial for the town of Fort Towson, the region, and the state of Oklahoma, in memory of her father, Cecil Evan Hobson. Welcome, John. Thank you, Theo. John, this started as a small and simple search for a figurine for a headstone, but it's become much more than that. Would you share the story with us? 
tell you, my aunt uh, grew up in Fort Towson, Oklahoma, in the 20s, from 1926 to 1935, and uh, her father served in World War I. He, uh, he died in 1946 of complications from the exposure to mustard gas, and in an effort to commemorate his or honor his memory, uh, she's been giving back to this little town in Oklahoma. Uh, she decided to put in a, a memorial to her father that has since grown into this uh, much bigger project to honor all of the veterans from Fort Towson, Choctaw County, and the state of Oklahoma who served in World War I. So uh, it's gone from a, a marker on her father's grave now to a full-blown World War I memorial dedicated to, to this Pacific War. John, tell us a little bit about the memorial and about how this project is affecting your aunt. Well, tell you, at 95, I can tell you she's in a hurry to see it come to fruition. The, uh, we commissioned a, a sculpture from a gentleman named John Parsons in uh, Kansas who does uh, very realistic sculptures. And um, so we commissioned the sculpture back in March. He just completed it about two weeks ago. The statue is currently at the mold maker and then we'll move from there to the foundry to be cast in bronze. It's a life-size statue of a World War I doughboy, and it'll be installed in the Hobson Park, which is a park that she donated to the little town. So it'll be installed in Hobson Park, set aside with two 30-foot flagpoles, and then some landscaping around it to provide some beautification to the area. Well, you know, John, this is a rather amazing project. You and I met by telephone, uh, I think almost a year ago, and I've been following the progress on this, and I've also been following the progress on the sculpture. It's, it's really detailed, and, and it carries her father's face. Absolutely. The sculptor, his, his level of detail is so exquisite. He was able to use a World War I military photograph of her father to actually put his facial features onto the statue. Uh, another point I would like to make, though, is that he, in his effort to make it as realistic as possible, we also purchased a World War I uniform, tunic and, and pants, along with a World War I gas mask, a helmet, and an ammunition belt, as well as a World War I rifle. And he used all those to get the exact measurements down and make sure that it's as true to life as it could possibly be. Those items will then go into the museum that she established in the little town, uh, she purchased the bank building that her grandfather owned during the Depression and refurbished it and turned it into a museum. So all of the World War I items will go into that museum for a special World War I exhibit that we hope will then draw attention to the memorial, which will be directly across the street on the main street of the little town of Fort Towson. She just recently purchased a 1906 antebellum home that her grandmother used during the Depression as a boarding house and she had it completely renovated and is turning it into a museum as well. And all of these are being donated back to the little town. You know, she's also, as I mentioned, uh, built the, the town park. She's been buying up more and more parcels of land and expanding the park. She had a custom uh, stone creation uh, fabricated out of Dallas, Texas, that uh, looks like huge Roman arches that sit in the middle of the park that form a wonderful uh, backdrop for outdoor weddings and ceremonies and things. So it's really become a, a draw for the little town. Uh, and as well, she's also um, landscaped five of the little churches in town. And these are, these are very small, you know, one-building churches for the most part. And uh, when they found that they couldn't afford to pay for the, the water to keep the landscaping up, she graciously offered to pay for their electric and water bills. And so for several years now, she's been, she's been paying for their electric and water bills for these five little churches. 
So she's truly tried to give back to the little town to give people a reason to stop there and see the beauty and the charm. And uh, I think she's she's really done a lot. Uh, one last point, if I could make, uh, Teo, is that we're hoping for a dedication date of November 11th this year, which, as you know, corresponds with Armistice Day as well as Veterans Day. And uh, so the, the intent is to invite the governor of Oklahoma along with the uh, representatives and senators as well as the state representatives to come down and, and really bring some publicity to this little town and, and show them that they're doing some wonderful things there. John, on behalf of the World War I Centennial Commission, from all of us here at World War I Centennial News, and I'm sure on behalf of our listeners, would you please extend our warmest thank yous and congratulations to your aunt, Mrs. Margie Motley, for her dedication in remembering our World War I veterans. Mrs. Motley, you're an amazing patriot and quite obviously an amazing human being. We're all incredibly proud to have met you through your nephew and your work. Thank you so much. Thank you, Teo. And thank you, John. That was John Motley for the 100 Cities, 100 Memorials Project in Fort Towson, Oklahoma. We're going to continue to profile the submitting teams and their unique and amazing projects on the show over the coming months. Learn more about the 100 Cities, 100 Memorials program at www.cc.org slash 100 memorials or follow the link in the podcast notes. Today in our education section, we're going to continue with our theme on letters from the past. On the show, we've heard time and time again about the powerful emotional impact and personal connection experienced from reading the letters from the era. This makes the archiving and sharing of letters and journals from World War I one of the most powerful commemorations there is, and it's also the focus of our next guest. Andrew Carroll is the founding director of the Center for American War Letters at Chapman University. Welcome, Andy. Great to be here. Thank you. Andy, your focus is on letters from all wars, but from your World War I collection, is there one letter or series that particularly stands out for you? You know, we have so many thousands of letters that people have very generously donated to the project. And, you know, whether it's war nurses or African-American troops, uh, there's so many great stories I think we want to tell and that need to be told. I would say, though, probably our most significant little bundle of letters that we've received and acquired are actually by General Pershing. These are letters that have never been seen before. Uh, they, they were kept within the family, and it was someone who worked with them who gave them to me. And actually, some of them are on display at the Smithsonian right now at the National Postal Museum, and will be there through November of next year. What's so incredible about these letters are some of them are handwritten. The ones that are typed have little PS notes on them, so you get to see the general's handwriting. Some of them are written right after the fire that claim the life of his wife, three little girls, and he alludes to Warren, the young boy who, son who survived. They're very poignant, very emotional. But then we also have letters from France, and it's interesting how we have the envelopes that were sent out, and, and even those were censored. So even the great general himself, the head of the entire AEF, had to have his letters read by someone else before they could come back to the States. But just to know that you know, the highest-ranking general in American history, a man who I think has been really sort of forgotten in many ways, just to have and to hold these letters is really extraordinary. And I think they probably are really the, uh, the, the shining example of great letters that are still out there and that someone had very generously gave to us. So as we heard earlier from Lynn Heidelbach from the Smithsonian, you worked with her on her exhibit. We have a lot of people and organizations from the Centennial community that are listening to the show. How can individuals and organizations access your archives? So we're working to put a lot of it online. We have a great website, warletters.us. 
Uh, we focus on war letters and we're American, so warletters.us. But what's especially important, and, and, and of course they can also go to the museum, the Smithsonian National Postal Museum, to see them firsthand, and the National Postal Museum has a great website. Uh, what's so important about getting the word out is that even people who don't have war letters might know somebody who does. Uh, it could be a, a neighbor who's a veteran or a teacher or someone. And in fact, we're working with schools where we're getting the students to talk to their families about what do we have in our, in our own family archives and lo and behold, they find that a great-great-grandfather was in the Civil War or a great-grandfather was in World War I. And so these letters are out there. I mean, there are millions of these correspondences tucked away in attics and basements and closets across the country. And our mission is to get them preserved because we've seen how, whether they're put on display, whether they're used in classrooms or they're used as part of films, these letters bring war to life. And that's really what our mission is, is to humanize the war experience. And whether it's General Pershing or a, a, you know, a young private writing home about a certain battle, they really help us get a sense of what these troops and their officers go through. And I think, you know, nothing really captures uh, their sentiments as powerfully as the handwritten uh, letter, or some of them are typed, but just that, that very personal correspondence to another person explaining this is what we're going through. Even with censorship, they really give you a sense of what they experienced, and these are their words and their stories, and I think no one can tell them better than they can. You know, that's come up a lot of times on the show as we've talked to different people. Uh, people talk about having held a letter in their hands and been completely transformed. It, and it really is. It, it, it's not about the dates and the numbers and the battles. It's about the human experience. And I think that's what the letters do. Exactly. Finally, Andy, you have another commemoration project that you mentioned to Catherine, a commemorative World War I plaque in memory of Edward Stone. Can you tell us about that? Just quickly, so I have a, my hobby, sort of a side passion, is I go around the country finding unmarked historic sites from any time of American history. In this case, the very last marker we just put up was in honor of Edward Stone. Stone was the very, very first American killed in the war. This is in 1915. He had joined the Foreign Legion in 1914, as many other Americans had, and uh, he was the first killed. And he's been very much overlooked, and a lot of times people focus on the first three AEF troops who were killed in the war. Uh, they get sort of all the attention. But I tracked down where he was born and raised. It was a childhood home in uh, Chicago. Sitting on that site is now a pub. It's called the Copper Fox. And uh, they were very gracious to let us put up a memorial for Edward Stone. So if you're in Chicago and uh, you go by the Copper Fox, uh, you'll see the plaque there. And every year, every August, uh, I'm going to go back and we're going to do a ceremonial toast. And we hope it really kind of grows in, in popularity. And just, you know, help use this as a way of reminding people that uh, the lives and um, the experience of these people are all around us. And we sometimes walk right past it, not even knowing that something significant or someone who was very significant lived right at that spot. Great projects, Andy. Thank you so much. Thank you. That was Andrew Carroll the founding director of the Center for American War Letters at Chapman University. Follow the link in the podcast notes to connect to the Center. Welcome to our updates from the states, starting with some exciting news from our friends in the Prairie State, Illinois. The First Division Museum at Cantigny Park in Wheaton, Illinois, will reopen to the public after almost a year restoration. The reopening and ribbon-cutting is set for Saturday, August 26th at 11 a.m. The museum features new and updated exhibits and some new cutting-edge storytelling techniques. 
The museum's reopening coincides with the centennial inauguration of the famed military unit known as the Big Red One. It became the first division of the U.S. Army in June 1917, assembling to fight in France. Read more about the first division and the museum's new features by following the link in the podcast notes. Next, from the Rough Rider State, North Dakota. Important plans are underway to honor Native American World War I veterans. Even before, most Native Americans had citizenship rights. Thousands of men from tribes across the country showed their patriotism by volunteering for the military and fighting in World War I. Now, as the nation solemnly marks the centennial, United Tribes Technical College, UTTC, at Bismarck, is planning to honor Native American servicemen. The honoring will be held on September 10th during the 2017 UTTC International Powwow. We hope to have a guest on from the event in the near future. But for now, you can follow the link in the podcast notes to learn more. And that brings us to the buzz, the centennial of World War I this week in social media with Catherine Akey. Catherine, you have two photos to tell us about. Take it away. That's right, Teo. I have two photos from our social media feeds this past week that I wanted to share with our listeners. We heard earlier in the show about the 94th Aero Squadron, also known as the Hat in the Ring Gang. We shared a photo of a few of them this week on our Instagram, at WW1CC. In it, five young and determined men lean against one of their squadron's planes, decked out in their uniforms. They are First Lieutenant Reed Chambers, Captain James Masoner, First Lieutenant Eddie Rickenbacker, First Lieutenant T.C. Taylor, and First Lieutenant J.H. Eastman. We shared the photo on August 20th, 100 years after the squadron was activated. Keep an eye on our Instagram for more images of the 94th and their recognizable aircraft over the coming months. Lastly, we'll do a final story on the eclipse, or eclipses. I was lucky enough to see the total eclipse this past week, and now that I've seen one in person, I understand better why they were and still can be seen as a bad omen. The National World War I Museum and Memorial shared a wonderful illustration this week on Facebook that we reposted. It shows a total eclipse cutting its way across Europe, leaving fire, death, and war in its wake. This is a different eclipse than the one we spoke of the other week. There was a total eclipse in the U.S. in 1918, but it was in August of 1914 with the totality crossing the Eastern European front embroiled in conflict, where it may have felt particularly ominous. The illustration reads, War, Two World Embracing Shadows, Eclipse. Head over to our Facebook page or to our social media feed at www.cc.org slash social to take a look for yourself. Thank you, Catherine. And that's it for World War I Centennial News for this week. We want to thank you for joining us and our guests. Lynn Heidelbaugh, curator at the Smithsonian National Postal Museum. Mike Schuster, updating us on the conflicts in the German army. The storyteller and the historian Richard Rubin and Jonathan Bratton giving us a glimpse of life as a German-American in World War I. John Motley from the 100 Cities, 100 Memorials Project in Fort Towson, Oklahoma. Andrew Carroll, founding director of the Center for American War Letters at Chapman University. Catherine Akey, the commission's social media director and also the line producer for this show. And I'm Teo Mayer, your host. 
The U.S. World War I Centennial Commission was created by Congress to honor, commemorate, and educate about World War I. Our programs are to inspire a national conversation and awareness about World War I. This program is a part of that. We're bringing the lessons of 100 years ago into today's classrooms. We're helping to restore World War I memorials in communities of all sizes across the country. And of course, we're building America's National World War I Memorial in Washington, D.C. If you like the work that we're doing, please support it with a tax-deductible donation at www.cc.org slash donate, all lowercase. Or if you're on a smartphone, text the word WW1 to 41444. That's the letters WW and the number 1 texted to 41444. Any amount is appreciated. We want to thank the Commission's founding sponsor, the Pritzker Military Museum and Library, for their support. The podcast can be found on our website at www.cc.org cn, on iTunes and Google Play at ww one Centennial News. Our Twitter and Instagram handles are both at www.cc, and we're on Facebook at www.centennial. So thank you for joining us. And don't forget to share the stories you're hearing here with someone about the war that changed the world. When Yankee Doodle came to Paris town Upon his face he wore a little frown To go he'd meet upon the street He couldn't speak a word To find a miss that he could kiss It seemed to be a bird But if this Yankee should stay there a while Upon his face you're bound to see a smile When Yankee Doodle learns to call he Hey, is that plane going to strafe us?